Amen. You may be seated this morning. Thank you all, and good morning. Thank you for joining us here. Uh, we count it a privilege uh, that we've been able to meet these 10 years, or going on 10 years, and we thank you that you have joined us here this morning. My name is Justin Crow. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission, in case you do not know me, and it is always a joy for me to be able to serve Mission by preaching God's Word. We are very committed to that here at Mission, in case you don't know all about us or a lot about us. We are very committed to preaching God's Word, and that means we don't skip around much. That doesn't mean that churches that do are wrong. It's just our contention is, and our belief is, it is better as you go through each verse by verse, line by line, because it makes you preach things you wouldn't. It makes you stick in verses for six weeks like we did these past six weeks, makes you preach over things like how the gospel applies to the body, how the gospel applies to sexual immorality, how the gospel applies to lust and pornography, how it applies to homosexuality. All of the topics of the day we have discussed and we have tackled those. And again, we make no apologies for that because these are questions. If you are truly living a biblical Christian life, you're going to be asked about, well, why do you believe that? Or how dare you believe that? Or something of that nature. So we spent a lot of time talking through sexual issues and sexual immorality and all of those things. And today we get to put a bow on that series within a series. So we're still in Fight the Drift, but this miniature series that we've stuck in, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20, we are wrapping up today just preaching verses 19 and 20. So because we preach the way that we do, context is always extremely key. It's always key anyway. If you're reading anything other than like a VCR manual, I said VCR, that's right, a DVD player manual, an 8-track, okay, if, unless you're reading an instruction manual or something, context is pretty much always very, very important. What was the writer talking about? Who was the writer talking to? At what age was the writer? Or, or at what time was the writer writing? We go through all of these as we go through writings in the Bible because they weren't written yesterday. So the context that we see here is that Paul is clearly talking about when he says, glorify God with your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. All of these things, obviously, if you are a reader of any kind, you can see it applies to sexual immorality and sexual issues. I looked all over and over Scripture this week for the tattoo portion of your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I couldn't find it, just so you know. It's about sexual immorality. But... I think there is a broader context in which we can look at these last two verses that don't just talk about sexual immorality. They don't only speak of those issues. If you remember back way back when we preached through the first part of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 20, there's a whole list of sins there that have nothing to do with sexual immorality. There's liars, there's thieves, there's idolaters, there's adulterers, there's all of these things. Paul is walking through these issues with the Corinthian people who were being saved or are saved, whichever way you want to look at that. They are being called out of a culture that is telling them all kinds of things. If it feels good, do it. If your body wants it, go get it. Whatever it is, it was taken to the extreme in this Corinthian context. And Paul is calling them and saying, you got to stand out. 
You've got to stand apart. You've got to be different. And it's not just so that you'll be different. There is a reasoning behind it. He's writing to people that were thrilled to death to be saved eternally. Woohoo, I love this. Jesus has saved my soul, but my body can kind of do whatever it wants. Like, what does that matter? If, if my body just goes and does these things, my soul is saved. So they love the eternal salvation. They were failing to understand what that meant and how it had to change their outward behaviors in the current time. And here's the thing is we live in a culture that's telling us that. Now, they may not tell us that God has saved our soul eternally, but they're saying, why does this current moment matter for the next moment? Live for the moment. Follow your heart. Do all of these things. This culture in, uh, in Corinth is basically what we're living in here and now. And Paul addressed a list of these to help them to understand that while, yes, your souls are saved, that does not mean you just get to go live with your bodies however you want. So he addresses these. Again, they included some sexual immorality, but they included all of these other issues as well. So that's the context of these passages. But today I want to walk through these passages, these two verses, in a much broader spectrum. And when I say a much broader spectrum, we're going to start in Genesis. So just bear with me. I'm not going to preach every word of the Bible today. Calm down. Okay? But the whole story is about God from start to finish. And yes, we do have to figure out how we fit into that narrative. But make no mistake, we are fitting into his story. It is not the other way around. We are fitting into his grander narrative. So how does that work? So I want to walk through several specific passages of Scripture as we try to answer a valid question that I'm sure many of the Corinthians were asking. I know for a fact I've been asked this question personally by a person that I would consider to be Christian. And I know 100% fact that the culture is going to ask you as a Christian if you are truly living this and proclaiming this gospel. They are going to ask this question. And that question is, why does God care? Why does God care what I do with my body? After all, it is my body. My body, my choice, right? I've heard that misused a lot this week. We won't go into that. But it's my body. Why does God care? Why does God care what I do in the privacy of my own home? Why does God care what I look, look at? Why does God care who I sleep with? Why does God even care? That's my business. That's your business. This is what the culture is going to tell you. And this is what some Christians are struggling with even today. Why does God care? We really are in love. We're married in God's eyes. These are all excuses and reasons people have given to be able to do what they want with their bodies. So why does God care? Doesn't he have bigger issues to worry about? That's the, that's the, the gist of what they're trying to say. Doesn't God have... Bigger fish to fry. Is that a southern term? Because we got some people here that are made bigger fish to fry. Is that a common thing? Okay, anyway. Bigger things to worry about. Doesn't God have bigger issues in his mind than what I'm doing in the privacy of my own home? And I want to tell you kind of point blank in actuality, no. He doesn't. One, because God doesn't have a priority list because God can do all things at all times with all people, with all things, all of that. But let's just take that out of it, okay? Let's just take out that God doesn't have a list of, well, I'm going to focus on this and let this slide for a while. 
while I'm doing this other thing. God doesn't have to do that. But let's take that out and let's just say, doesn't God have bigger issues to worry about than what I do with my body? And again, I would say, no, he doesn't. Let me prove it to you. Genesis 1.1. We're going to start there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes on to say all of the other things that he created throughout that chapter of Genesis. Not a lot of context needed here. There's not a lot of context to be had anyway because it's the first verse of the Bible. But it says, God made everything. Therefore, it's his. Therefore, he makes the rules. Therefore, he does with it as he wishes. It is his creation. He can set the expectations. He can set the standards. He can set all of it. It's his. He does with it as he wants. Reading further into Genesis, Genesis 1.27 so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Now, some of y'all know that my wife and I are building a house right now. So I brought up the other day, you know what? Now's the time. It's, it's time. We're building. We've put this off long enough. It's a perfect time because the house is not all the way built yet. I've been told by many people it's easier to do electrical work. It's easier to do plumbing work. It's easier to do internet work. All these things as the house is being built. And I told my wife, I said, we've put it off long enough. The statue of me that we're going to put in the front yard needs to go now. Okay? And here's the thing. Prices are going up, so we need to get on it. We've got to put the... I'm going to have a sword... I've already planned it out. I've got swords from Program Living. Some of y'all are familiar with this. I'm going to have a sword. I'm going to do this like Eric from The Little Mermaid. Okay? I don't know why y'all are laughing. Okay? She told me when I brought this up, if this was a real story, that that would be arrogant. That would be boastful. How dare you think that you're so important and you're so awesome that you deserve a statue made in your image to celebrate you. And she was right yet again. That would be arrogant and boastful for me to make one single statue celebrating how awesome I am. Currently, God has 7.5 of them, 7.5 billion of them walking around. That's how important God is. He didn't make one. He did make one, and then he made another one, and then he made 7.5 billion of them now. That's not even including all the people that have died. This is how great God is. He made statues of him, images of himself to glorify himself, to make much of himself. It is not to make much of Adam and Eve and all of the, the people that have come after that. It is, he is the creator. This whole world and everything in it was made specifically to glorify the creator. It is made to make much of the creator. So let's keep going. Exodus 19.5 Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. So God once again reminds them, and he lays claim, all of it's mine. I can do whatever I want with it. I can do what I want with the people, the places, the things. All of it. I can do whatever I want. So we see here, though, that he has set his sights on a specific people, a specific treasured possession. People of his choosing. And he's allowed to do it. Because it's all his. The whole earth is his. And he's saying here, I can do with it as I please. And this is what I please. So he owns it all. There's certain parts of it that are more treasured by God. Treasured possession. We've all played out the scenario. If my house catches on fire, right? What am I going to go get? What am I going to make sure gets out with me? If you are a parent and your kids aren't on that list, I'm going to call CPS today. Okay? Your, your kids 
have to be on that list. Now, beyond that, you can kind of make your own list, okay? But if you have children, they got to get out. There's a fire coming, and God is saving his children, his treasured position, who he deems, who he chooses, who he pleases, who he predestines. You can use all the biblical words that you want, but this is what God is doing. He is saving his specific people, his treasured possession, out of all of the people in the earth. He's gathering them up. Ezekiel 18.4 goes on to say, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. This one gets a little more specific. So he was broadening it, saying, I own these people. These are my treasured people. This group of people are mine. But now he's going down specifically, the souls of these people are mine. This is not just general ownership. This implies that God is not just owning the stuff of the world. He's owning the people of the world. Their essence, their souls, everything about them. Their minds, their bodies, their souls. All of it. God owns it. Therefore, who are we to question how he governs it? Who are we to question how he chooses to lay out his plans? How he chooses to cause us to live from day to day? So we are his treasured possession. And that means all of us who are Christians, right? We're his treasured possession. That means our whole being. Everything about us. Now, Isaiah 43, 7 sums this all up. It says, Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God is very specific here. I created them. They are mine. I do with them as I, as I wish. But the reason I'm doing it is a three-word phrase you will see over and over and over in Scripture. For my glory. I created them for my glory, whom I formed and made. This goes to tell us that not only are we treasured, but we are not treasured because you're so awesome or because I'm so awesome. We are treasured by a great God who is so awesome. And it's not because we earned it or asked for it or deserved it or any of those things. He did not make us just so he could be entertained watching us like we're an episode of the real world or Road Rules, or whatever show you watched when you were a kid, and some of y'all are like, what is that? It's a show. Don't watch it. It's terrible. Okay. It is to glorify Him, though. It's to glorify and to make much of Him until we are taken home to where we get to see His glory in full. And then we get to live that out sin-free forever. And we get to worship Him forever. And it will take all of eternity to even begin unpacking how great God is and why He deserved 7.5 billion images of Himself at any given time. That is where we start seeing these things with our own eyes instead of just reading about them and imagining them. But we get to start living them without a sin-tainted heart, a sin-tainted mind, all of those things. But He did it all... For his glory. See, the common theme in these verses, and I left out literally dozens, if not hundreds. The common theme in these verses is that God owns it, God's concerned about it, and God gets to do what he wants because it's for his glory. The other commonality that exists here, though, in case you didn't notice where all of those verses came from, is they're all Old Testament verses. So it's been this way since the beginning. This is not post-Jesus came, Jesus lived a perfect life, 
Jesus died a, a, a death on the cross that we deserved. He rose from the dead three days later to forgive us of our sins. This is all previous to that happening on earth. And yet God is still claiming ownership. He's still saying, this is all mine. I can do with it as I wish. This is before bought with the price that we're talking about here today. We'll get back to that in a moment. We are his treasured possessions, but we are his possessions nonetheless. In short, he made us, he owns us, he does with us every, and everything else as he pleases, and it's to fulfill a specific purpose to glorify him. So, this understanding helps us to understand why God cares what we do and what we don't do with our bodies. This is why the verse goes on to say we glorify God in our bodies and why God doesn't have bigger issues to concern himself with. Because it's for his glory, and there is no bigger issue. What we do with our bodies either does or does not glorify God. That is the issue. That is always the issue, is what we do brings glory to God, or it doesn't. Or it reveals God's glory, or it doesn't. That is why, when it tells us to glorify God in our bodies, we cannot answer back to him, man, don't you have better things to worry about? Don't you have better ways to spend your time? No, I don't, child. No, I don't, son or daughter, because it is all about me. It is all about my glory, and you are reflecting that or not reflecting that at any given moment. And he decides what the right way and the best way for those things to go is. He decides how it should be done, how he is best glorified, how he is most glorified. All of those things, he decides, not us, too many times we twist it around to think, well, I'm bringing God glory by doing this. Are you, though? Because he reveals to us how we are to do that. And with our bodies, with our minds, with our souls, all of those things, how we worship him matters. And he gets to decide. And again, these passages reveal to us why he gets to decide. Because he made it, and he made it for his glory. So we can see clearly why God cares. We are his. And we, as human beings, are the most treasured of all creation. We're the top of the line, the creme de la creme, the whatever. Okay? The, the cream of the crop. And we were made, just like everything else, to honor and glorify him. However, humans are made differently than every other creation. And here's why. He has given us wills. Now, you notice I did not say free wills, and here's why. It is my belief, and really I don't even know if it's a belief or if it's just biblically factual, but it is my belief that two people wherever ever lived were able to not sin. Now, Jesus is obviously in a category of his own. He was God. That I don't mean him. But two just human beings were created with untainted sin, or, or no, non-sin natures, and were able to be perfect, Adam and Eve. They had the choice. They had, a, they had a, what we would call a free will. They could have been obedient their whole lives because they were not born with a sin nature. However, they chose to disobey the one rule God gave them. So in their choosing, they chose the wrong path. Then they had children, and here we all are. Since that day, since the apple, the pomegranate, the whatever they ate off of that tree, since that day, no one has been born with a truly free will. No one has been born with the ability to deny sin their whole lives. 
No one has been born with the ability to say no and be obedient all the time. Our wills from birth are not truly free. They are bondaged. They are sin-natured. Every human being is born with an unfree will because from that point on, our natures are prone to sin. Now, your sin may be different than my sin and vice versa, but we are prone to sin. We are always going to be drawn towards sin. This does not mean we don't have the ability to choose things, though. Because everybody always answers back to me, but I, I, man, I can punch you right in the face right now if, you, if I wanted to. You're right, you can. You, you can choose day by day, week by week, hour by hour. You can choose moment by moment the things that you do or don't do. That is your will, but that does not mean it is free from the slavery of sin or the slavery of Christ. You are always prone to sin. And we should choose God. We should choose His way. We should choose obedience. But we don't. The Bible says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. No one is righteous. No, not one. That should cover everyone in here. Not one person. We all sin. We all live and breathe out the very oxygen God provides for us in rebellion to Him day by day by day. Doesn't mean every breath you take is, not, is sinful. There are days you do pretty good. But do you want to know how unfree your will is? Try not to sin at all, even once, for a day. Just one. Just one day. We all have gone astray. And this includes all of the ways in which 1 Corinthians lays out. This includes all the sexual immorality we've talked about over the last few weeks. Therefore, based on these choices, the choices we do get to make... We are slaves to sin. Romans 6.16 Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? You've got A and B. You can be a slave to sin or a slave to obedience. A slave to unrighteousness, a slave to righteousness. A slave to sinful things, the devil, whatever you want to call it over here, or Christ. This means that God giving us all a different ability than any other creation. There are no moral tigers or moral zebras. They just do what tigers and zebras do. We have the choice of morality. Every single one of us has willingly sold ourselves into slavery. Every one of us. Me included. Every one of us. We have sold ourselves into bondage. We have sold ourselves to our desires, to our flesh, to our wills, to our dreams, to our ideas, to our thoughts, to our sinful natures, to the things that the song we just sang here at the end. I tried to satisfy myself so many times, and it just didn't work, but I've sold myself to it, and I've sold myself to it, and I've sold myself to it. We are slaves, and we are unable to choose not to be on our own. We are unable to break those bonds ourselves. But glory be to God that he does not simply give us commands to follow and then step back and only... Well, let's see what they do with those. Let's, let's see how they get themselves out of this mess. He doesn't give us impossible requirements to uphold and then simply leave us to languish in our failures, in our griefs. He doesn't just leave us. He doesn't see us sold into slavery by our own wills and then with cold indifference go, it's what they deserve. Sorry about it. 
Y'all did this to yourselves. How many parents in this room have said this? Okay. Well, you did it to yourself. Oh, we got to go to the ER. Right? It's like, like you quickly change when you realize they're actually hurt. But sometimes we just say, you did it to yourself. God does not do that to us. What do we see here in verse 20? It's the title of the sermon. We are bought with a price. Slaves come with a price to get them out of slavery. We are purchased out of the very slavery we placed ourselves in. We willingly chose. We walked up to the slave trader and said, Take me. Take me to wherever you're taking these people. We are redeemed out of the life that we fully agreed to enter into. We're bought out of the bondage that we placed ourselves to again and again and again and again. And you see God in His infinite mercy and grace, even when we keep turning away from Him, goes a step further to make us a suitable dwelling place for Himself. So the rest of our time here today, I want us to unpack four ideas of how, we are, how being bought with a price frees us from something or someone. So how is this bought with a price? How does it lead to our freedom? And I'm going to go ahead and give you those up front and we'll revisit them. But the first way, we are bought with a price to be freed from God's wrath. Number two, we are bought with a price to be freed from Satan. Three, we are bought with a price to be freed from sin. And four, we are bought with a price to be freed from ourselves. We see all of these ideas in scriptures, all four of these ideas, and the fact that God would go through this process. Yes, to glorify himself, but to save sinners makes him all the more glorious. These scriptures will appear on your screen as we get to them. So the first way God frees us from his own wrath is we know the wages of sin is death. We know that sin separates us from a holy God. We know that God can, should, and will pour out His righteous wrath justly upon all sin. So then how can we as sinners be reconciled to Him? So the first verse, we've got Romans 3, 24, and 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. You see that big fancy seminary word right in the middle, propitiation, means to appease, to pacify, to reconcile, to pay back, to buy back, to purchase back, to redeem. All of the things we're talking about here today. It's not just a substitute this for this. It's this for this because a payment is owed. It goes a step further than just taking A and putting B in there. A payment is owed. And how did he do this? How did he pay it? A propitiation what? By his blood. Jesus purchased our reconciliation to God by his infinitely valuable blood, his priceless life. Jesus made a way that God's wrath can be averted away from deserving sinners and to him alone. This is the number one and most important way God buying us with a price frees us. Without this one, none of these other ones would matter anyway. 
We must be reconciled to a holy God in order for anything else to matter. You can't live for his glory at that point. You can't be saved at that point. There is nothing that matters if this one does not get taken care of. But praise be to Jesus. We're putting ourselves... You ever seen those old school westerns where somebody's tied somebody to the train tracks? So weird. They're usually silent films and Charlie Chaplin comes and saves the day, but whatever. We tied ourselves to the train tracks and the train is a-coming. And what does Jesus do? Flips the switch and jumps on the tracks. So that, not so that no one pays. He doesn't just steer the train around us. No, no, no. He steers it to himself. He willingly pays the price of our slavery. And he had never sold himself into slavery. He had never sinned. He had never done anything. And he willingly pays our price to get us out of the slavery in which he was never in to start with. He is on the tracks and we are spared. So we were all deserving of God's wrath, but we were bought with a price. The second way we see in Scripture is from Colossians 2. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to a cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, this one is tricky. Because to be freed from Satan... It's just a tricky, fine line you've got to walk. And the reason it's tricky is because Satan is simply a weird topic that I don't know that we'll fully ever understand this side of heaven. But you've got two camps of people with, with the devil. People that give him way too much credit for everything, right? So these are the people that, man, I ran out of gas on the way to work yesterday, and because I was late, I got fired. The devil must be after me. That was the 17th time you've done that. Okay, that ain't the devil. That's you forgetting to go get gas the day before and you ran out of gas on the way. That ain't the devil, okay? That's you, all right? If it happened once and your gas tank said full, I, maybe. I, I might be able to give the devil some credit there. But no, you've done that a bunch of times, all right? You're always late. It's not the devil. The other category of people, though, uh, swing the pendulum the other way and the devil gets no credit for anything. He's never done anything. He's got no power. He can't, like, we just ignore him and act like he doesn't exist. And both of those are dangerous. Okay? Satan is real. He does do things in the world. He's not a mythical creature like Sasquatch or the Boogeyman or whoever else you believe in that ain't real. He is real. And technically speaking, we are living in his kingdom right now. When Jesus is tempted in the desert and Satan offers to give him the entire world, Jesus does not look at him and go, it's mine anyway. Get out my face. No, he acknowledges that right now, temporarily, Satan has been given dominion over his kingdom. But there's a day coming where it won't be any longer and Satan will join everyone else in chains. Too many times we think God is this powerful, the devil's this powerful, and we're just somewhere down here. Now, the devil is more powerful than us. Yes, but it's not anywhere close. God is going to chain him forever. He is real, and yes, technically he's over this, but he doesn't own us if we are Christians. He doesn't own us and our souls. That's where it gets tricky. We're being saved from Satan, 
Because God has given him the ability to do some things. And God has given him the, the leash. He's let out a little bit to let Satan do some things. But it's, it's different than he is buying us back from the ownership of Satan. When you go to a store, you pick up an item, you go to the cash register. If you're not a thief, that is. You go to the cash register, you pay them the money, you've traded them money for the object. That is not what is happening here. Remember, we are choosing to be on the side of Satan. We are willingly on his side, and that is the point. We are not being purchased from Satan. Imagine a courtroom where Satan's got all the evidence. You are dead to rights. You are guilty. You are done. They've got DNA. They've got video. They've got you confessing. They've got testimony of everybody around you. You are guilty. What does this verse in Colossians say? It says, he disarms the rulers and authorities. That's Satan. That's him. That's the powers that be. And he puts them to open shame. How? By canceling the record of debt against us. In that same courtroom, he's got you. You are guilty. You are done. You are going to jail forever. And he opens his folder with all the evidence to get going, to rip into you, and it's empty. There's nothing there. It's not because you don't have evidence of sin in your life. It's because you have evidence of sin paid for in your life. It's done. It's double jeopardy. They can't punish you again. They can't charge you again. They can't bring this evidence against you again. Why? Because Jesus said it's finished. Therefore, it's finished. So we were all guilty, but we were bought with a price. The third way we see in Scripture tells us we are freed from sin. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. It says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We see here that we were ransomed. We had sold ourselves, again, into the slavery of sin. Here in the, this verse, it's called the futile, futile, futile ways. Depending on how you pronounce it. We all know the slavery of sin. We all know sins that started off as a good time and they stopped being a good time a long time ago but we didn't stop doing them we couldn't stop doing them we've tried and we've tried and we've tried and we are slaves to that sin to that feeling to whatever it is that is the definition of enslaved by your own selfishness by your own flesh your own desires your own wills but our freedom from that has been purchased not with money or silver or gold but by the precious and priceless blood of Christ a great debt was owed, but a greater payment was paid. We referenced Romans 6.16 earlier that tells us you are slaves to sin, right? There's no way around it. We're all in the category. We're slaves to sin. But if you keep reading, verse 17 goes on to say, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. God has taken you from the slavery of sin and placed you in the slavery of righteousness for his sake, for his glory. We were all slaves to sin, but we were bought with a price. And the last way we see in God's word that we are freed is from ourselves. This is 2 Corinthians 5. We'll get there in few years but y'all will forget by then so for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised 
I think there's a reason why the Bible repeats itself over and over again. Paul, even in the, in the letter of the first Corinthians, I think the words, do you not know, were in there like six or eight times. It's crazy. Like he keeps saying, like, don't y'all, like, I feel like I've said this before. Do you not remember me saying this? Do you not know? Do you not know? And the Bible is doing that because we forget. We make things all about ourselves. If something bad happens in our lives, everybody's got to know about it. Everybody's got to feel bad for us. Everybody, like, you have a conversation with them, you leave going, why didn't they ask me about that bad thing that's happening in my life? Because they also have bad stuff, and they're walking away wondering why you didn't ask them about their bad stuff, okay? This is why we've reverted in the South to saying we're fine and just moving on because we all leave mad at each other, right? It's, we've twisted the world to be about us and our glory and our everything's got to go right and our feel good and all of these things. But the creator of the universe tells us it's not about us. We are not the center of our own universe. And this misconception is what leads to many sin issues. I should feel a certain way. I should be happy in this way. I should do this. So I get to do it. This is what leads us to steal like thieves. This is what makes us lie when we feel bad. This is what all of these things. It leads to sexual immorality that we've talked about over these last few weeks. All of these things. And those things are sometimes obvious and sometimes not. But so many times we minimize them in our own hearts. Well, I, I mean, it's bad, but it ain't that bad. And that leads to the sin of self-righteousness and thinking that you don't really need saving or need the cross or need Jesus, that you're, you're pretty good yourself. You're, you're not that bad. Yes, you need forgiveness, but God really owes you forgiveness because you deserve it. I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon, good old, good old Chuck, this week. And it said, Our imaginary goodness is more difficult to conquer than our actual sin. And I was like, yes. When you become a Christian for a little while, this is where you start falling. I'm actually pretty good. If you watched my life for a day, you'd think, man, he does all right. Not if you were up here. Not if you were in here. Y'all wouldn't think that about me then. But our imaginary goodness, people think highly of you. People think you're doing well. People think you're this, that, or the other. I'm doing pretty good. It's harder to conquer than our actual sin. It's harder to get someone to understand that this great price, this infinite price of Christ's precious blood had to be paid for their little rinky-dink sins as well. Whatever you think the worst sin is, you're like, yeah, Jesus definitely had to pay for that one. He definitely had to pay for that murderer over there that rapist over there, or whatever it is. He had to pay for that one. But mine? Like, I was a virgin until I was married, so I didn't even have sexual sin. Did you not? Because any small sin, Jesus still had to pay this same price. Notice verse 15 here says that Christ died for all. Now, most of the time when a preacher preaches that, they're like, so no matter what you've done, you've got hope. No matter how bad you've been. You've done this, 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 and this. He died for all. You're all. You're included. And that's right. And I want everyone to hear that no matter what you've done in here today. You can be made right with, with God through Christ, through his blood. What they don't usually preach is that the for all also means the ones that don't think they need it all that much. He died for you too. The ones that think, mm, he didn't really have to pay that much for me. Yes, he did. For all. It's not for the really bad ones or the worst ones. It's for all. 
But this is why there is hope to be found only in Jesus, because he died for all. Whether you are a goody two-shoes or the worst of the worst, Christ died for you to free you, to save you, to purchase you back from your self-inflicted bondage. It takes God to get you out of that. It takes payment to get you out of that. It takes a great sacrifice to free us from ourselves. We were all living for our own kingdom, but we were bought with a price. You see, we are all in desperate need of being purchased. The problem is that it takes such a great price to pay for it, we can't pay it ourselves. Thankfully, we have an infinitely valuable Savior who is willing to pay the, pr the price that was owed. Look at these verses, the common theme. Freed from God's wrath by his blood. Freed from Satan's accusations by nailing it to a cross. That would also equal blood. Freed from, the sin, freed from sin by the precious blood of Christ. Freed from ourselves by his death. Our sin created an enormous debt and it had to be paid. We all want to minimize that and act like it wasn't really all that bad. But that's just minimizing the price that was paid. That's minimizing the sheer amount of grace it takes to save you. That minimizes how great God is when you minimize your sin. doesn't mean you've got to come confess it to everybody and tell it to everybody and be all out and open about it. But say, yeah, I was bad. I deserved wrath. I deserved hell. I was a sinner. And look how great God is. He saved me. He purchased me. He bought me. Instead, we, may we recognize and admit that our sin is great and we were bought with a price. And that price is the same for everyone. It is the blood of Christ. This should lead us to double praise because we are doubly owned. God made us. He already owned us. He already had us. We were already his possession. And we extricated ourselves to go towards sin, to be a sinner, to be all of these things, to go to slavery. And instead of saying, all right, y'all picked it, y'all live with it. It's your bed, lie in it. God then does the secondary ownership of purchasing us back from that slave. We are doubly owned by God. Therefore, working backwards in our passage today, so in 1 Corinthians 6, we were bought with a price. Therefore, if you work backwards, it says you are not your own. Why are you not your own? Because you were bought with a price. So if, you were, if you're not your own, what are you? Therefore, you are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit because as God's possession, he can decide where he resides. If you own a house, you can pick the renters. This is what he is saying. I choose where my Holy Spirit dwells. But if my Holy Spirit is going to dwell somewhere, it has to be properly adjusted or properly saved or properly purchased. or prop It has to be a proper dwelling place for the Holy Spirit to live. Therefore, because God has chosen this as his dwelling place, this right here, what you're seeing here today, what you're seeing here today, your d his dwelling place, therefore, glorify God in your bodies. And it is a big deal, as we've established. It's not just some small thing, who cares what I'm doing in my spare time. There is nothing bigger than God's glory for him to worry about or for us to worry about. There is no bigger deal than God's glory, period. So may we, as his bought and paid for creation, as his treasured possession, live for the glory of God which we are made from now and for all eternity. Because that's what we're going to be doing for all eternity.
It is all about Him. We are bought with a price for a purpose. You aren't bought with a price to just go, all right, go on. For a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify the one who paid the infinite price for our eternal living with Him. It is so that we can glorify the one that did not leave us in the slavery we placed ourselves in, that loved us enough to go pursue us. It is to glorify Him with every breath that we have, every move that we make, every thought that we think, everything in us. Glorify God in your bodies. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning confessing that we are sinners. That we are great sinners. Massive sinners. That we willingly sell ourselves into slavery. And yet, you are a God that loves us so much. You are a God that loves your glory so much that you pursue us. You chase us down. You find us on the selling blocks at the slave trade and you purchase us back to be your treasured possession yet again. May we be reminded of the price that you paid here this morning. May we never minimize that. May we never stop singing songs that glorify that, that glorify you for being that God who doesn't look at us with cold indifference, but looks at us with love, that looks at us that, and for your glory saves us, purchases us. May we live a life that shows we were bought with a price. May we do that with our bodies, with our minds, with our souls, with our strength, with everything in us, living out this Holy Spirit that is dwelling within us because you placed him there. Because you made us worthy to be his dwelling place. And only by that are we worthy. May we glorify the one who made us worthy. And it's in Christ's name. Amen. All right, this morning.